thank you, PJ, for drawing our heart into God's grace once again. And thank you, church. Thank you, missions committee. I want to just say on behalf of all the missionaries who would love to be up here and also say thank you for all your hard work. The way you treat us is amazing grace. (laughs) Thank you. And thank you, Pastor Byron, again for the invitation to be with you in this 55th um, missions conference. So I want to review just briefly this morning. we, We talked about how the church grew through the third way. Uh, not by Roman assimilation, cultural assimilation, I'm having a hard time with that word tonight, not by cultural assimilation, nor by religious isolation, but the church grew in this third way by shining as light, shining as the light of the Lord Jesus. And the church grew so much that by the year 382, the Roman emperor, Theodosius, declared Nicene Christianity to be the official religion of the Roman Empire. Not just general Christianity, but Nicene Orthodox Christianity was now by Roman edict, by the edict of the emperor, the official religion of the Roman Empire. That would be like the Congress declaring the doctrinal statement of Dallas Theological Seminary to be the the law of the land. Wow! Bells rang. People sang. Nicene Christianity is the law of the land. Read the Bible. Let everyone turn to the Lord. Christianity has won. People were enthusiastic. They thought all the prophecies of the Bible had been fulfilled and the famous church father Augustine wrote this swept up in all the enthusiasm he said the promises and the prophecies of scripture are being fulfilled let the few who remain aloof hear the world's roar acclaiming the victory of Christianity wow 30 years later on August 24th 410 the Visigoths led by Alaric who evidently did not love the Nicene Creed, sacked Rome. Rome's glory was gone. Rome was a wreck. The eternal city, which was what Rome was called, was destroyed. Hopes were dashed. Just like that. And Augustine went back to the theological drawing board and he began to think about, well, if we don't have Roman power backing up Christian truth... What do we have? And he wrote his most famous work called The City of God. And and I want to read a brief quote because I think this could have been written last night. He says, two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly city by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly city by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The earthly city glories in itself, the heavenly city in the Lord. For the one city seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other city is God. The earthly city lifts up its head in its own glory. But the other city says to God, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. See, that's why the story is is so important. Right now, you and I live at a time when there is one theater, there is one stage, 
there is one set of props and there are two scripts. And you need to know which script you're on. We need to know our lines and what is the role that we play. So I want to talk about that this morning. This morning we looked at, this evening, this morning we looked at the story. And we talked about three ways in which the story energizes us to go out. Remember, it renews our wonder and worship in the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ. And the story also refreshes the way that we do strategy and mission so that we do not have a transactional Jesus, but a glorious Jesus who is not only true, but glorious. And in the third R of this morning, the way the story energizes us is that it revitalizes our vision to live as children of light. The light that cannot be put out even when we have no cultural mass. Light cannot be assimilated by darkness. Light never isolates itself from darkness. Light shines in the darkness. So what's the rest of the script? Three S's we're going to look at tonight. Serving, suffering, and spirit. So first, serving. We serve as servants of the servant of amazing grace. We serve out of our own experience of grace, giving grace to those who need it as badly as we do. The God you know is the God you show. If you know his grace, you'll show his grace. Jesus came to this earth as the grace-giving servant of God, and that's exactly what we see in Acts 13. So please turn with me again to Acts 13. Acts 13, 47, our theme verse. It says, for God has commanded us. This is a command. It's not an option, not a strategy. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying... I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul is quoting from Isaiah 49. So keep your place in Acts 13 and please turn back to Isaiah 49 to understand what Paul is saying as he quotes Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, and we'll begin in just a moment with verse 5. Isaiah 49 is one of four servant songs. There are four servant songs in Isaiah. Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 52. And in these servant songs, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, is describing and speaking and actually singing of his serving, his suffering, and his exaltation. So Isaiah 49 is one of the servant songs and the servant is speaking about how he will serve. Verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me, the Messiah, from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He, the Lord, says, It is too light a thing. To light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you, my servant, a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. 
So what do we see here? We see that the servant, the Messiah, is a servant of amazing grace. Grace is going to flow out from him not only to restore the nation of Israel, but to go to all the, all the Gentiles. It's too small a thing that the servant of the Lord should just restore Israel to favor and blessing. That's small potatoes. God wants everyone, even these uncouth, unclean, bad, dirty, Gentiles, to come to know His grace. Okay, now back to Acts 13.47. Again, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Is Paul misquoting this verse when he applies this verse to us? When the verse in Isaiah 49 refers to the Messiah? I don't think so. I think Paul is telling us that you are in Christ. You are members of the body of Christ. You are servants of the servant of amazing grace. And just as he serves as the servant of God's grace to the entire world, so you too. You show the God you know being servants of the servant of amazing grace. Yeah, it's good to build up the church. We all do that. We should. But God is saying, that's, that's too light a thing for you. And what I love about this church is this church understands that. It's too light a thing to just have a Bible church here in Huntsville, Alabama. Now, that's too light a thing. We've been made light that God's salvation may go to the ends of the earth. The grace of Jesus in the name of Jesus. And I find it fascinating that church historians um, attribute much of the growth of the early church to this grace giving. The church was a servant of the servant of amazing grace. An example. In the Roman Empire in the year 165 and also in the year 250, there were pandemics. 165 was bad. The pandemic in the year... 260 was terrible. It made COVID look like a head cold. By some calculations, 20% of the population died in the pandemic of 250 A.D. 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome. And they, they don't know exactly what this plague was, but the symptoms were horrific. There was nausea, Vomiting, fever, then came partial paralysis of the limbs and finally hemorrhaging that would bring death, especially hemorrhaging in the eyes. And there was so much fear of contagion and death during this pandemic that if you got the plague, if you had the symptoms, you would be taken out to the side of the road and cast in a ditch to die. When people died, not even family members would touch them to bury them for fear of contagion. But the servants of grace, the disciples of Jesus, had another take on it. Some of them, at least, pulled people out of the ditch. They nursed them, cared for them, bathed them, fed them, changed their bedclothes, clothing, prayed with them. And when they died... They washed their bodies. They wrapped their bodies in clean linen and gave them a decent burial. And yes, some of those who cared for the sick got sick and died. Their lives were a living example of Christ's sacrifice 
And one of the Christian bishops of that day, Cyprian, who was bishop in Carthage, now part of Tunisia, wrote this. He said, there's nothing really wonderful in cherishing only our own people. Too light a thing. He said, we must follow Christ's attentions of love, overcoming evil with good and practicing mercy like Christ's divine mercy, which loves even enemies. The God you know is the God you show. If Christ came to save all, we are called to serve all. And according to historians, Christians, get this, Christians did better in the plague as a result of their serving. Because number one, basic care and kindness did help people get well and recover from the plague. Number two, the Christians that recovered from the plague became kind of a a super nursing force that were able to help even more people survive the plague. And number three, Christians were praying. And when God, they were asking for healing. And when God gave healing, those who were healed said, this Jesus Christ, he is Lord. Now, you might think, well, I'll try and remember all this the next time a big pandemic comes. (laughs) But the point here is not so much about about making heroic sacrifices. The, The point is serving as Christ's servants in those grace spaces that he opens for you. Where can you serve as a servant of amazing grace? The darkness is getting deeper. But the grace spaces are still opening wide. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey talks about a friend uh, who was the head of a crisis pregnancy center. And so some people from the the university down the street came to picket on, on a cold day there in Michigan. They came to picket the crisis pregnancy center. And so the director of the center she went out and bought coffee and hot donuts, hot coffee and donuts. Donuts are hot too, I guess. But she went out and she served the picketers. And she said, I, I know we don't agree on this issue, but it's cold out here this morning. And I thought you might like to have something hot to eat and drink. The picketers couldn't believe it. They were sure the coffee was poisoned. <laughs> As a family, uh, we've seen God open the heart of one of our neighbors when we took uh, a bag of coffee and a card to him on the anniversary of his wife's passing from cancer. And you do a lot more. You do all that and a lot more. You, You go into those spaces of grace as servants of the servant of amazing grace. It reminds me of the old Steve Green song, The Mission. Do you remember that one? The second stanza says, as a candle is consumed by the passion of the flame, spilling light unsparingly throughout a darkened room. Let us burn to know him deeper. Then our service, flaming bright, will radiate his passions and blaze with holy light across the street or around the world. The mission's still the same. Proclaim and live the truth in Jesus' name. That's our script. Second S in the script is suffering. Suffering. As you serve people with the grace of Jesus in Jesus' name, you will suffer. You will. You will will suffer. 
And that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus, a servant of amazing grace, suffered for giving grace. Philippians 2 tells us that he became, he humbled himself and became obedient even to death on a cross. Here in Acts 13, Paul is preaching this message of grace. In Jesus, you can be forgiven and freed from all those things from which the law of Moses could not free you. And when the Gentiles hear this, it says, verse 48, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. The Gentiles shout for joy. Finally, finally, we are no longer second class citizens just because we don't follow the Jewish rites of circumcision or follow the Jewish laws of diet and holy days. Amazing grace. I finally understand that I am fully accepted by God. So everything is wonderful in Pisidian Antioch, right? Until it isn't. Verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. So here we have Jewish religious power with Roman cultural power. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Drove out is a very strong word there in the Greek. It's kicked out, thrown out, tossed out. It's been, it refers to being taken, as it were, taken by the nape of your neck. And tossed out of the city. Has anybody ever driven you out? Because you love Jesus? And Paul's suffering is just getting started. Just imagine with me for a moment. If Paul had been posting photos of his first missionary journey on Facebook. Okay, here we are getting thrown out of Antioch. And here, uh, here we are in Iconium, which is the next town down the road. Here's a picture of all the Gentiles responding to Christ. And oh, oh, here's some photos of us running for our life out of town because the Jews and the Gentiles and the leading people of the city have planned to beat us and stone us. Oh, and, and speaking of stoning us, here's another photo. Here's a photo of me lying near dead outside of Lystra where I was stoned. Because I healed a blind man, I'm sorry, a lame man, lame from birth, and was declared a God. And if we looked at Paul's second missionary journey, he would say, yeah, here's a photo of me after having, in Philippi after having been beaten savagely with rods. Oh, and, and here I am in Thessalonica where there's a mob looking for me that wants to kill me. Oh, did you see this boat here in this photo? This is the boat the brothers at Thessalonica put me on and took me 200 miles down the Greek coast to Athens, where for the moment nobody can find me and kill me. And why did Paul suffer like that? For preaching grace. For being a servant of the servant of amazing grace. If you share grace, you will suffer. And Paul writes to Timothy at the end of his life. When Nero is about to take his life and he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.10, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You know, that's the heritage that some of you 
are leaving. That heritage of faithfulness. You followed my persecutions and my sufferings, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. These persecutions I endured, yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. The Lord knows how to rescue you. In His way, His time, and His place. Psalm 34, 4 and 5 says, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are what? Radiant. Radiant. That's true whether you're like Paul preaching the gospel in Asia Minor in AD 48 or whether you're sharing the gospel here in Huntsville or whether you're one of our overseas missionaries in the countries that are represented in this conference. You know, sometimes I, I think that we, we kind of fall into this thinking that, that missionaries suffer because uh, they don't have all the conveniences of living here in the United States. I think every missionary in the auditorium this evening would tell you that the most painful suffering, the most difficult suffering, is relational suffering. And it, and it comes from the, the reactions and sometimes the rejection of people with whom we have shared the very best grace of Jesus. That is suffering. I mean, during the years we lived overseas, yeah, I, I couldn't get my GIF crunchy peanut butter. And, and there were times we had no chocolate chips and I mean, I missed entire college football seasons. I really, I really did until the Internet came along. But we should never confuse inconvenience with relational suffering that comes from loving people with the grace of Jesus. One of my heroes is a guru in the mission field. He's from Sri Lanka. His name is Ahith Fernando. And he led the mission, um, mission organization, the uh, parachurch organization Youth for Christ, for 31 years. Uh, he's written many books, and in one called The Call to Joy and Pain, he writes these words. He says, Sri Lanka has faced a lot of pain in the past 25 years. We had a war in the north and the east, a revolution in the south, a devastating tsunami. Some of you remember that. Several floods and epidemics and the persecution of Christians doing evangelism. I guess that's a little tougher than wondering about peanut butter or who's playing in the sugar bowl. He goes on to say, my friends abroad mention how fortunate they are that they do not have to live with so much pain. I tell them that's true, but that the greatest pain over the past 25 years has not been from any of these tragedies that have struck Sri Lanka. The greatest pain comes from relationships. It is the pain that comes from being committed to people. True commitment involves investing in people so much that we become vulnerable to being hurt by them. Doesn't that sound exactly like Jesus when he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And if in your serving you are suffering... And if in your serving with the grace of Jesus, you're getting a little roughed up and scuffed up 
If you're suffering rejection, if you feel like you're being marginalized, Jesus says, you're on the right track. That's exactly where you should be to bear much fruit. He goes on to say in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, he's not talking about heaven, where I am as a grain of wheat fallen into the ground. There will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. That's the script. Serving as servants of the servant of amazing grace. Suffering as we give that grace. The third S is spirit. Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings deep joy. Holy Spirit joy into the lives of those who live, who live out the script. Who live out the story. There's Holy Spirit joy in our suffering. Verse 51. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went to Iconium. So Paul and Barnabas shake off the dust. Let me just say a word about that. This is not an angry gloating. Okay, you guys are going to get it now. It is simply a way of saying we've done our job here. You can turn in repentance to Christ. Paul and Barnabas will be back in Antioch in a few months to strengthen the church and its gospel ministry so that people may have these opportunities to turn to Christ. And then comes verse 52, which may surprise us, it says, And the disciples were filled with what? With joy. And with the Holy Spirit. Suffering is not the opposite of joy. Suffering as servants of the servant of amazing grace actually opens your soul to greater joy. Holy Spirit, given joy because you are on script in the story. I want us to flip over for a moment to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 40. Acts 5.40 says, And when they had called in the apostles, they, the council, beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ of Isaiah 49 the servant is Jesus. Now Luke 10. One more passage I'd like you to look at. Luke chapter 10. Because we see the same thing in what Luke tells us in his gospel. Luke 10, 72. I'm sorry, verse 17. Talking about the 72. 10, 17. The 72 returned with Joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions 
and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. There's great public successful ministry here. Nevertheless, says Jesus in verse 20, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do not rejoice in the success of your public ministry. What you should rejoice in is that your names are written in the book of life. And, you know, don't you think, don't you think that God delighted in writing your name in the book of life? That's joy. And Jesus himself experiences this joy. We'll pick it up in verse 21. He says, in that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things had been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows who the Father is No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And don't miss this in verse 23. Then turning to His disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. You are seeing God incarnate. You are seeing your heavenly Father who loves you so much incarnate in my person. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see. They wanted to see the kingdom and did not see it. And to hear what you hear, the disciples are hearing the very words of God on the lips of Jesus. This is joy. This intimate communion with Jesus. In his book, Enjoying the Trinity, Michael Reeves says it, I think, brilliantly. He says, in the triune God is the love behind all love, the life behind all life, the music behind all music, the beauty behind all beauty, and the joy behind all joy. Over the years of working with students in Latin America, um, and many of my students are in their 40s and 50s, are leaders and pastors, I've discovered that most of them struggle to find joy in their ministry. Uh, Like us, they are prone to groan. (laughs) And as we begin to drill down into uh, their their walk with the Lord and the course on the spiritual life of the leader, I hear things like, I I feel like I've lost my joy. I'm still committed to my ministry. I'm I'm working hard. I'm faithful to my calling. I'm, I'm seeing some results, but I've lost my joy. That's a teachable moment. That's actually a good moment that God has brought about so that they might enter into real joy, understanding that no matter how significant, no matter how successful their ministry might be, real joy, Holy Spirit joy, is not to be found in public success. It is only the Holy Spirit who can bring us that joy by showing us the beauty of Christ and the wonder of of his love for us. And so we actually do a joy test in the, in the class to see if they have a joy deficit. Because they are like the 72. They want to rejoice in the outward results, the, 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 their public ministry, instead of understanding that joy comes from the relationship with Jesus. Do you struggle with joy? 
I do. That's why we have a joy test. The hardest time in my life were the first two years we came back from the field and began to live in Texas. I did not have joy. I felt like a failure. I felt depressed, discouraged. Failure is a missionary. What am I doing here? Failure is a father. I did not have joy. But Jesus drew near to me in a special way. And I began to understand joy is what he gives to us. It is the power of the Holy Spirit, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You will have joy when you are on script walking with Jesus. Let me wrap up our conference um, with a story that I think illustrates the four S's in a special way. Story, serving, suffering, and spirit. Many of us think of John Calvin as a great theologian. He was also a visionary in missions. And he believed that missions flowed out of a gospel-centered theology. He, he, he wanted missionaries who, who knew and loved the story of God's grace in Jesus. So he set up his academy in Geneva, Switzerland, which is on the eastern border, western border of Switzerland, eastern border of France. And he began to prepare these pastor missionaries to go into, into France. France was hostile to the, to the gospel. So these pastor missionaries would go in and they had many, many Bibles hidden in their clothes. And they also figured out a way to pack in some kind of a flattened communion set that they would use. And so in they went to France and they began to plant churches. And over a number of decades, uh, 1,500 of his graduate, graduates planted more than 2,000 small churches with an estimated million people coming to know the Lord Jesus. And they suffered. But Calvin was convinced those who are most enthralled by the beauty of the gospel will be those who are most willing to sacrifice even their lives for the gospel. And in 1552... Five new graduates entered into France, and within a short time, they were captured and held prisoner in Lyons, France. Calvin worked tirelessly for their freedom, did everything he could to, 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 to bring about their release. But in June of 1552, he wrote a letter to the five trying to encourage them. He said, you see to what God has called you. Doubt not, therefore, that according as he employs you, he will give you strength to fulfill his work. I beseech the Lord Jesus, said Calvin, that he would be pleased to make you feel Christ's protection and to fill you with his Holy Spirit who will give you prudence and virtue and bring you peace, joy, and contentment. And may the name of our Lord Jesus be glorified by you to the edification of his church. They kept on working, making contacts, trying to get these prisoners released. But nothing worked. In May of 1553, Calvin wrote a second letter in which he said, The king of France has refused all requests. That God should have appointed you as his son's martyrs is a token of his superabounding grace. 
There now remains the conflict to which the Spirit of God not only exhorts us to go, but to run to. For let enemies do their utmost, they shall never be able to bury out of sight the light which God has made to shine in you. Two days later, the five were burned at the stake in Lyons, France. As they lit the flames, they could hear the five encouraging one another. Courage, my brother. Courage. You know, the darkness is deepening, don't you think? But we go out with joy. We go out with joy because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. God's story is a light story. God's first lines in the script, what are there? They are, let there be light. And there was light. And virtually the, the last lines in the script are also light. So let's just close with this, looking up just this, these two verses, Revelation 21, 22. Revelation 21, 22, it's speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven because it is the will of God to make his dwelling with man. That's grace. And it says the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is, what does it say? Its lamp is the lamb. And drop down to Revelation 22, 3. God's servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. That day is not here yet, but this is the script. This is the script. Are you ready with your lines? you know your part? Ready to play it? Are you ready to step into those gray spaces and shine? The God you know will be the God you show. And we will dwell with Him forever and ever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank You that the script You have for all eternity is wonderful, beautiful, amazing, full of grace and glory. Do help us to know our lines and play our part. Above all, I pray for us tonight that we would have joy. Joy that does not come from evaluating our ministry or our other performance in whatever role that you may have placed us, but joy that comes from Having seen your son, as Peter says, even though we have not seen him, we love him. And even though we do not see him now, we have great, we have great and glorious joy in him. Thank you for this church, for its commitment to being light. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jim. For a benediction.
This is a line that I've repeated throughout the year. May the Lord bless you and keep you as we go out to our neighbors in 35801, your neighbors at home and to the world. Uh, thank you for being here this evening. Thank you to the missionaries. We pray for safe travels back home. Thank you for being here this evening. Go in peace. Shalom. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you.